morning. I'm going to be uh, reading the sermon text um, for today, which is from Malachi uh, chapter 1, um, the first five verses. So that's page uh, 801 in your pew Bibles. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I'll ask you to take your Bibles again and turn to Malachi chapter 1, in case your Bibles have fallen closed on your laps, or maybe you had trouble finding that little book in the first place. Um, It is the last book of the Old Testament, if that helps you. You can also... Don't have to feel ashamed to look in the table of contents um, for a page number. But let's be on the same page. We're turning today to a a new book, and we'll get into that in a minute. But as you're turning, let me just say once again uh, a warm welcome to all of you who are visiting with us today. Uh, We're very glad that you're here and uh, trust that you feel warmly welcomed. We want to, I know it's awkward maybe, uh, but we we really want to invite you to Stay afterwards for lunch. We've got tons of food. That's never an issue. We've always have lots of leftovers. So um, join us downstairs immediately following this service, and we'll feed you, and we'll look forward to getting to know you a little bit better. Um, you know those, um, you know those pullback cars that kids play with. Our boys have tons of those things because uh, their great aunt, I think she must have bought them every single time she was in a Cracker Barrel store. Um, we've got boxes of them. But you know how they work, right? You, you pull them backwards just a little bit, and then you let them go, and they go speeding across the living room floor, and then they crash hard into the baseboard at the opposite wall. Uh, well, it seems to me that that's a, that's a pretty good picture for the season that we're now entering. You know, this morning we were treated to just a little bit of a, a pullback. We got a little extra hour. But you know what's about to happen? Things, things are about to speed up. And uh, before you know it, we're going to go whizzing past Thanksgiving. And then we're going to go speeding past Christmas and New Year's. And I predict, if history is any guide, that sometime early January 2023, we're going to crash. You know, we're going to hit a wall. And uh, the danger, of course, is that we would miss the import of these holidays, that we would simply go through the motions. And, and even apart from this specific season, the perennial danger that we face is that we would be detached and, and really disconnected and disinterested when it comes to our relationship with the Lord, that we would just simply go through the motions, you know, of our religious duty or that our affections would grow cold 
that we would compromise in terms of our covenant responsibilities. I'm talking about the the danger that we all face of spiritual drift. And uh, D.A. Carson once observed, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience, to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness. We delude ourselves into thinking that we have escaped legalism We slide towards godlessness and we've convinced ourselves that we have been liberated. That was an observation that um, Don Carson made years ago, but it's still true. It's still the danger. Nothing is new. The, The same kind of spiritual drift characterized the people of Israel throughout their history. And for them, one of the more pronounced periods of spiritual sloth occurred, you know, approximately 450 years before Christ. But let me just back up a bit and give you a bit of the history that leads up to that point. Um, This year at our church, we finished up a study in the book of Genesis where we saw the formation of this people, the people of Israel. They were formed really by the promises of God that he made to the patriarchs, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And early next year, Lord willing, we're going to continue the story. We're going to dive into the book of Exodus and see how God graciously rescues his people out of slavery and then leads them into a promised land. Now, if we just kind of fast forward a bit bit to the reign of King David, then uh, we see see there Israel really prospering under under his rule and his reign. They're prospering nationally and physically and spiritually. This is a sort of golden age, kind of like how we sometimes think of the 1950s in America. And under Solomon, the the, the temple was constructed. But not very long afterwards, spiritual lethargy set in, in in a profound way. And the kingdom was divided. You've got Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And under the just judgment of God, the northern kingdom was taken away into exile by the Assyrians in uh, 722 BC. And then the southern kingdom, Judah, follows a little bit later by the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar in 586. And in the process, the capital city was completely destroyed. The temple was was. Uh, raised and what's left of of the people of God. They're not in their place. They're scattered all around. But in the grace and kindness of God, the people of Israel were eventually freed from their captivity and they gradually returned to the land. And under the leadership of people like Ezra and Nehemiah, the temple and the priesthood and the city walls were rebuilt. You might think that Israel would respond to such grace with a lot of humility and repentance and obedience and loyalty. 
but not so much. Within one generation, significant spiritual drift had already occurred. And by the mid-400s before Christ, the, the priesthood was corrupted. Uh, the people's worship was half-hearted. They were disloyal to God. They were disloyal to their fellow man, including members of their own family. Spiritually speaking, things are exceedingly bleak, and that's putting it very mildly, I think. Kind of like how we think of America in the 2020s. Enter the prophet Malachi. Malachi coming on the scene is just further evidence of God's grace and, and his mercy. Yes, to confront sin, to confront a wayward and rebellious people, but more amazingly, to, to announce what he is about to do f to purify these people for their good and for his glory. In short, the message of this book, the good news of this book, is that God is going to send a messenger who will come for judgment and for salvation. So, and so it's perhaps appropriate that we would take a closer look at the prophecy of uh, this minor prophet, Malachi, in the months leading up to the time in which we celebrate the advent of the messenger, that promised messenger. And it, I think it's appropriate, too, that we would, as the carol says, uh, let every heart prepare him room. This book is going to give us plenty of opportunity to evaluate our spiritual condition, to evaluate our religious commitment in light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's just pray that, that God will use this uh, study, that he will use the prophet Malachi millennia later to challenge us and to convict us and to purify us for the purposes of righteousness and holiness. Now this morning we're going to look at the first five verses of the first chapter, and we're going to do so under three headings. First of all, the oracle. We'll look first at the oracle. This draw your attention to verse number one. Well, that was a pretty long introduction that I just gave you, much longer than the actual introduction to this book, which we find in verse 1. In the original language that this was written, in the Hebrew, it's a mere seven words. And very succinctly, it tells us all we need to know about the what and about the who of this prophecy. As for the what, this is one of those cases where we run into some difficulty in translation. And uh, I had the great privilege of uh, teaching theology in Mexico a couple of weeks ago. And so there was a lot of translation that had to be done, both from Spanish to English for my sake and from English to Spanish for their sakes. And for the most part, things went very well. Um, had a couple of young guys that were excellent translators. But every now and then, we would hit a snag. We would stumble upon a word that doesn't have an exact equivalent in the other language. And so we'd have to figure out how to kind of work around that sort of thing. One, one example would be the um, Spanish word empalagar. Okay, this, this is used to describe 
that sickly feeling you get after eating something that is too sweet. Okay, it's not exactly that you're stuffed, you know, you're, you're not exactly full. It's that one specific feeling from that one specific flavor. So it doesn't even work if you're describing something savory or whatever. Now, thankfully, we never ran into that particular translation difficulty because mainly because I've never reached my limit on sweets. So there would be no use for that word ever. But in the same way, the, the Hebrew word masa doesn't perfectly translate into English. And the best most translators can do is to render it oracle. But I'm afraid that that loses something of the force of the original word. Because masa means more along the lines of burden. It, it indicates a, a much heavier subject matter than oracle might suggest. And the idea here is very similar to what we convey when we use an expression like, there's something that I need to get off of my chest. You know, it's a, it's, it's a burdensome thing that's weighing on us and we need to vocalize it so that other people will understand and they'll know what's bothering us. And usually when we use that expression, we, we are wanting to unload ourselves on the guilty party so that that burden will hopefully be imposed onto them with the ultimate goal that, that the matter can be resolved. Now, in biblical prophecy, the burden is transferred between three parties, kind of in two steps. It goes from God, the, bur the burden is on him, and it goes from God to the prophet, and then from the prophet to the people. And that brings us to the who. There are three who's in verse 1. And first, and most importantly, is the Lord. This burden is his. He is the offended party. And thus it is he who addresses this wayward people. Another way of putting this is that what we find in these four chapters of this prophecy is the word of the Lord. That's, that's also how verse 1 describes it. This is Yahweh's burden. It's Yahweh's word. Yahweh has taken the initiative to challenge the complacency of the, this people. And so this prophecy begins and ends with him. I think that's important for us to keep in mind as we work through this text because we'll want to keep the focus on this primary who. You know, this is going to be all about the Lord. And, and keep that in mind, for example, when we come to to some very well-known well passages like in, in chapter 3 where it talks about robbing God. And a lot of times um, pastors and churches use a, a text like this to challenge their people to, uh, to tithe more and more consistently and uh, makes a lot of use, a lot of use of the, the promise that God makes, the, the challenge that God issues about how if you were to really give sacrificially, then the Lord is going to just open the, the floodgates of the windows of heaven and just pour blessing upon blessing upon those people. Now, there's a way to, 
to, to preach that, and indeed God says that, but it seems to me that a lot of times the way a passage like that is explained is very man-centered. And, and the goal of all of this is to, is, it's, all, it's almost like financial advice. If you want to really get wealthy, then, then you'll be a giver. That's a very man-centered approach to this. But I'm, I'm trying to challenge us and hold before us the obligation that we have in this verse and in the whole Bible to be God-centered. This is his burden. This is all about him. Obviously, then, the second who in verse 1 are the recipients. You know, the intended audience for this heavy word from the Lord. It's directed to to Israel, to the offenders. Now, you'd think that should be enough. You know, two who's. There's two parties. There's the offended party and the offenders. And you might wonder, why can't these two just kind of get together and work it out? And the answer is because that's not how the Lord works. That's not how the Lord typically speaks. Rather, he speaks and he works through mediators. You know, there's, there's an appropriate distance that exists between sinners and a holy, righteous God. Neither party, for, for different reasons can waltz into the presence of the other to merely just kind of work things out. And at every stage of redemptive history, God is speaking through mediators. He's speaking here through prophets. But that is going to quickly come to an end, as we'll see pretty soon here. The Lord is not going to speak again for some 400 years. There's going to be a lot of awkward silence. But he does speak now, and he does speak through a mediator, a messenger, a man by the name of Malachi. Now, we know next to nothing about this Malachi. I don't know if that disappoints you. Um, it's not the case with other prophets, with other guys. You know, we're sometimes told who their daddy is. Uh, we're sometimes told when they lived, where they lived, where they're from. We have none of these details explicitly given to us in the text. And so, you know, we try to piece it together. And some of you have already suggested to me that with a name like Malachi, uh, this, this must be a prophet with Italian descent. Um, seriously, though, his, his name is is not very revealing. It doesn't give us any clues whatsoever because it simply means messenger. Now, don't get the wrong idea. That's not a boring fact that I just gave you, okay? It's not... All, all I mean to say is that it doesn't reveal any personal details about this particular prophet. And I think that that's just as well. Because what, this, what happens is this now enables all of the focus to be in the right place. The focus is not to be on the present messenger that the Lord is sending with his burden to the people of Israel. No, the focus ultimately is going to be on the messenger that the Lord will send in the future to the people of Israel. And before him, to prepare the way, another messenger in both cases, with John the Baptist and with Malachi, it's important 
that they would decrease so that he might increase. I'm giving you lots of uh, hints here at the very beginning of where we're going. You know how the book of Hebrews opens. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God, the offended party, still deals with us offenders through a messenger, through a mediator. There is one God, and there is one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And so my hope and prayer is that as we study this particular oracle, that you will come to understand all of these appeals that are made to you, and we're going to be challenged on a number of fronts, but they're to come to you and land on you in light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's get into it. Let's look in the second place at the opening. The opening. If you're taking notes, that's a second heading that you can jot down. Now as we head into the holiday season, I'm reminded of a holiday alternative that was created by a, a curmudgeon from Queens, New York named Frank Costanza. And that alternative holiday was called Festivus. And it was, a, it was designed to be a, a festival that was free from all of the commercial and, and religious trappings. As Costanza explained, it's a Festivus for the rest of us. And instead of a tree, the, de the decoration is just a simple metal pole, since uh, Costanza said that he finds tinsel distracting. Uh, but the, you know, the, the festivities, the tradition of Festivus begins with the airing of grievances. And that's an opportunity for participants to talk about all of the very many ways that people have disappointed them throughout the previous year. Now, if you, if you just set aside for a minute how depraved and dystopian that example is, it, it might, you might be able to salvage it a bit for a helpful picture of what's going on in the book of Malachi. This prophecy can be thought of as an airing of grievances. It's almost as if the Lord has stood up at the table and says, I got a lot of problems with you people. And now you're going to hear about it. And, and the structure of this book is really a, a series of disputations. Okay, these are significant complaints that a holy, righteous God has against his covenant people. And this book doesn't just record God's grievances, but it also records all of the defiant um, defenses and all of the cocky clapbacks on the part of the people. And for, for that reason, this book is actually kind of tough to read. It, it's, it's almost as awkward as, as being a guest at Frank and Estelle Costanza's house. Except in this case, only one party is at fault. 
Okay, the, the Lord God is justified in, in all of his grievances against Israel. But you should keep in, in mind another difference. And that is that the Lord is, is airing his grievances, not just to get them off of his chest, not just to kind of unload and unleash. No, the Lord is very gracious to confront us with our sin in order that there would be genuine repentance on our part, in order that our fellowship would be restored. He, he's gracious to convict us of our sin, that we would own it, and that we would return to him, which he invites us to do in chapter 3, as we'll see. So um, if you're going to use that analogy, don't take the analogy too far, okay? Our, our heavenly father is not like George Costanza's father. This is not an uncontrolled outburst. God is not ornery or curmudgeonly. He actually is a merciful and gracious God. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and, and faithfulness. And I hope that that is your main takeaway from this book. That even though we are faithless, God remains faithful. I hope that's your takeaway from this service today. That you are, once again, um, just reminded of and confident in the steadfast love and faithfulness of our God. So that's the structure of this book, the airing of grievances. The Lord's got a lot of problems with his people, and now they're going to hear about it. And so as verse 1 concludes, we, we stand back a bit, and uh, we're, we're ready for God's burden to be unleashed. And whatever grievances he has, we expect that he's, he's probably going to lead with a biggie. You know, that, that's how we do. That's our strategy. If we, if we have a list of complaints against someone, we bring out the, the big guns typically right away. And we, we like to bury kind of the, the lesser secondary issues somewhere in the middle and before coming out strong again at the end. But the beginning and the end, that's where all the impact is. And, and our expectation is that this opening salvo is going to be the most devastating critique possible. And so we kind of brace ourselves for the impact. And here's what we get hit with. I have loved you, says the Lord. We get smacked in the face with the love of God. Now, don't misunderstand the tense here. He's not saying, I used to love you, but... Pfft, now I don't. He's saying, I have set my love and affection on you long ago. And that past action continues down to the present day. So this is how God opens, by assuring us of his ancient and abiding love for us. Now I suppose we, we open, we might open this way too sometimes. But for us, it's just kind of a tactic. It's a way that we kind of create a blank check for ourselves to be able to say whatever we want to say with immunity. You know, if, if only we say, you know, the, you know I love you, right? Then we can unleash. A few years ago, a, a video went viral of a, a preacher who was having a pretty bad day. And uh, in the middle of his sermon, this pastor went down into the pews and 
started calling out people who were nodding off and had various and sundry other issues. I think it was just a, a bad day. But for, uh, for everyone that he attacked, he made sure he first said, you know that I love you, right? And he said to this one Mr. Underwood who was preparing to marry one of the young ladies in the church, um, he, he called him out. He made him stand up and hug him as he assured him of his love. And then he said, you're the sorriest church member I have. You're not, you're not worth 15 cents. And he moved on to Brother Cox in the video room after that. Now, that I think the reason that video went viral is from all of the other pastors who were watching that and uh, enjoying that and wishing that they had the bravery to do something like that. <laughs> no, but you get the strong sense that, that the only reason that he led with all of that love was so that he could just kind of excoriate his people with, with immunity. Not so with the Lord. He, he leads with his love so that we would be assured of his unwavering commitment to us and his disposition towards us that doesn't change. And not only that, but set within the greater context of God's love for us, our sin, our failures, our lack of love for him, our faithlessness, our quarter-hearted worship, these, these can be seen to be much more grotesque than they ordinarily appear to us when you set it in the context of the love of God. Against the backdrop of God's loving disposition towards us, our lackluster love for him, well, I mean, that's, it should be instantly rebuked. Let me give you a couple of examples that we'll come to in Malachi. This is more of a sneak preview kind of a sermon. Throwing five bucks into the offering plate is, um, I don't want to speak broadly here, because um, God, the Lord commends the widow for giving her might and it's all she had it was sacrificial but let me just say without having to parse this out too much that that for most Christians throwing five bucks in the offering plate is pathetic when you consider that you spend more than that on just one you know grande pumpkin spice latte uh, at Starbucks which you're going to consume probably heavily pretty heavily for the next couple of months but it's far more pitiful when you consider the Lord's love for you and how much he has sacrificed for your salvation and how God has abundantly provided for you. So do you see what I'm saying? Set against this initial backdrop of the love of God, that kind of a, of a failure, that kind of a half-hearted action just seems all the more grotesque. Here's another example. Are you struggling to love your spouse? Have you been unfaithful to her, whether in, in thought or in deed? Well, your, your biggest problem is not that you've lost sight of your partner's love. Your, your biggest issue there is that you've lost sight of the love of the Lord. You understand that the great model for marriage is the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us. And it's only when we are 
reassured and re-enchanted, if I could speak that way, by the, by the love and the faithfulness of Christ, will we ever hope to be able to show love and faithfulness to our spouse? That, that's how scripture argues. That's how Malachi argues when you consider the structure and this opening salvo concerning the love of God. The Lord, what I'm trying to say is that the Lord leads with his love so that right off the bat, we would be comforted and convicted and motivated to move towards him. But we're stubborn fools, aren't we? And our first instinct is not to just surrender and to move towards him, to return to him. Our first instinct is usually to justify ourselves. And humanity's innate rebellion, I think, can be seen in the immediate response of the people of Israel. Do you see it there in the text? They're like, really, Lord? You love us? Prove it. How have you loved us? And I wonder, have you ever said that? And I know you probably haven't said it out loud. And it's, it's probably true that the Israelites maybe never said that explicitly out loud. But Malachi knows them enough and he knows their hearts and the stuff that they do say and the things that they do do that this is exactly what they're thinking. Have you ever thought this? Lord, you, really? You love me? And you wonder, especially in your, in, when you're in the midst of very difficult circumstances you wonder how is that even possible that the lord loves you and we set up these conditional kinds of phrases like if you really loved me then and what follows the then is some kind of idealized circumstances this is this is how we respond this is how we defend ourselves this is how we accuse god and When we're kind of taking stock of it right now, we can see how ridiculous that is. It's kind of like when you're a parent, um, it's, it's ridiculous when your kid says that to you. You know, your, your kid's got an attitude with you, and he, he waltzes up to you, and, and you say, but son, I love you. And he's like, yeah, right. I'm, I'm, this isn't happening. This is just a hypothetical situation. <laughs> but... Um, the kid comes up to you and like, yeah, right, you don't love me. And the kid's like decked out in all the latest drip and he's got Air Jordans on you, right? And he's, he's in a warm house. He's got everything that he could ever need. And you're like, do you, do you even hear yourself? Can, this is a ridiculous picture. And that must be even just kind of a small way of what that's like for the Lord. When we come before him in even in the theater of our own minds and imaginations and say, you really love me, Lord? Prove it. And he's proven it a million different ways. And isn't the Lord just so patient? If you needed more evidence of the fact that the Lord is loving in his disposition towards you, it's because he doesn't snuff you out when you say something as boneheaded as that. But let's see how he responds. It's, it's quite interesting. He doesn't respond in the way that we would expect. 
It's his love that's, that's questioned. And so what he points to is the opposite. And that's a, a third point. That's kind of the third heading that you can write down. You know, there's, there's uh, two different ways that you can approach most topics. You can approach it positively, but then you can kind of come in through the back door and view it negatively by, by looking at the opposite state of affairs. And it seems like that is what the Lord is doing here. That's how he chooses to respond to this rebellious people when they question how it is that he has loved them. And so he's going to show them what hatred would look like, if I could put it in those terms. He says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Those are, those are difficult words for modern people to hear and to understand and to kind of connect with what we know about God. We, we expect, don't we, that God is love. You know, he even says, I've loved you. But we have these weird notions about the love of God and, and part of it is that we think that God ought to love everyone the same. It's an issue of fairness. It's, a, it's just what good teachers and parents do. It's to view everyone as the same. And God is reminding them that that's not the way that his love works. His love is an electing love. He, when he loves people, it's because he has sovereignly decided in the goodness of his own pleasure, that he is going to set his love and his affection on those people. And he does not have to set his love and his affection on everyone in the same way, indiscriminately. And the best kind of test case for this in scripture is the case with the twins, Jacob and Esau. And this is picked up again in all throughout the, the Bible, actually, but probably most famously in Romans chapter 9 when the Apostle Paul picks it up again. And the reason why these brothers, these twins, are such a great case study is because they're twins. That's what, we, that's what they do in science, you know, to have a double blind. A really good study is when you can do a twin study, when so many other factors are kind of accounted for and you can point to just narrow in on, on some differences. This is, this is a twin study. And um, the Apostle Paul tells us that what's so good about this is that we're talking about a time before the twins could even do anything, good or evil, that would kind of dispose them favorably towards God or against God. And, and the, the truth is that God has set his love on Jacob and Jacob's offspring in a way that he has not done for Esau. It's, it's interesting that Esau, it, even in the verse here, is listed first. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? And that's another way that we think that things should work. They should work by order of birthright. And um, if, if, if there's going to be any kind of distinction between um, people that are loved or given an inheritance or whatever, it should be in terms of their birth order. But God has, God has superintended all of that, and he has chosen the younger 
over the older. This whole discussion is reminding the nation of Israel that they are the objects of the special electing love of God. And as, as I said, the way that God chooses in this case to prove that to them or to explain that to them is having them view the opposite. So what happens to Esau? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> what happens to Esau? What happens to the nations that's come from him? And that is, you can read about this in verse 4, Edom. It's a nation that comes from this unchosen line of Esau. In some ways, these two nations, Israel and Edom, have they've got a couple of similarities in terms of what's happened to them. Obviously, uh, Esau and his people have been rebellious, and they have disobeyed the Lord, and they have gone their own way and done their own thing. And eventually, the Lord judges them as well. Eventually, they too are exiled. They are taken out of their land. And God says they're, they're in an act of judgment. Their land has also been laid waste and ruined. It's become the, the haunt of, of jackals. It's like a, a desert. You ask, where's Edom? And the answer is just kind of a picture of tumbleweeds going through the place. It, in some ways, it's paralleled to what happened to Israel in their disobedience, except one major difference. The Israelites of this day are able to stand there surrounded by a temple and city walls with their people together. Even though they've sinned in the same ways as their older brother nation, Edom. And you ask, what is the difference? What is the what is the, why do we have a rebuilt nation? And why is Edom a wasteland? And it doesn't matter if Edom says, oh, we're going to rebuild too, just like you guys did. We're going to come back to our land. We're going to rebuild our stuff. And the Lord says, no, that you might build it, but I will tear it down. And your destiny, Edom, is to be what you're going to be known by as a wicked country. You're going to be called, you're going to, your name is going to be a byword. You're going to be referred to as the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. What's the difference? The only difference is the love of God, which has been upon a particular people from before the foundation of the world. And this is such an interesting way to look at things. And I, I would encourage you to look at it as well. If you ever doubt the love of God, just think about the opposite. Think about, think about the, if, if the Lord had just left you to your, your sin and your rebellion. If he had just, you've, you've destroyed, you've made a mess of your life. You've, it's, it's made utter ruin. What if it was the case that the Lord was just, angry with you forever which he has a perfect right to be what if god consigned you for eternity into a place prepared for the devil and his angels a place that the bible calls hell he would be right and just to do that but that is not how 
God has dealt with you. He has dealt with you in electing love. He has chosen to set his love and affection on you. And he has rescued you and rebuilt you for your good and for his own glory. If you ever need to be reminded of the love of God, just just play out the scenario of what it would be if the Lord hated you. And so... It's a real perspective shift here, right from the get-go, for this people. And um, this is going to be a, a necessary... Pre- Here's the ultimate perspective shift, though. Verse 5. When, he see, when we see the outcome of the wicked, in this case Edom, then, we will sh- then we'll say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Then we will say... How great is the the love of God. It's so great that we could never even write it on the the skies if if the sky was a scroll and we had uh, unending ink. Friends, we need to, right from the get-go here, as we dive into this book of Malachi, and I'm excited to be studying this with you, but, but we need to right away come to grips with the undeserving love of God that has been poured out upon us. And we recognize that it has been poured out upon us most supremely in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We are, we're no different from Edomites. We're sinners. We're rebels. We've shaken our fist at God. We've accused him of so many things that are actually our problem. And God Instead, while we were shaking our fist at him, while we were yet sinners, he sent his son to to die for us. And he treated, this is the astounding thing, he treated us, the enemy, as if we're a son, and he treated his son as if he was his enemy because the son died for our sin in our place. And so I call upon you, perhaps you're hearing this for the first time, that this is how you might be saved. If you repent of your sin, if you turn of your, from your sin and you trust the Savior who died on the cross for sinners and who absorbed the wrath of God that was rightly coming towards you and he took it in your place so that you might be freed up to enjoy nothing more for all eternity than the endless, boundless love of God. What, what great mercy and love has been shown us and we commend you to it today and so um, as we as we go downstairs as we uh, feast around these tables as we come around the Lord's table and feast on all that Christ has done for us and for our salvation I pray that you would be just overwhelmed by the love of God that has been displayed so beautifully to you and to me and that we would um that we would be committed to living a life that is reflective of, of that love. Amen? Amen.